0: Get out to the welcome that Golden gave you at the beginning. It's good to see you all here this evening. Let's just pray and ask God to speak to us through His Word. I need God's help, and you need God's help to understand it as well. So let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you that you've spoken in many ways in the past through the prophets. Yet your word reminds us that you spoke finally and decisively through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we come to him, the living word, and we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to take that word and apply it to our hearts, to our minds. And we pray this for ourselves as individuals and also as a church, a local church here in Edinburgh. May we be quick to hear And equally quick to respond. So help me and help each one of us as we focus on this word for this particular evening. This particular day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last year, as you may have seen in the media, a terrible scandal emerged in the People's Republic of China. A chemical had been added to milk products and infant formula for babies. ...to cause it to appear to have a higher protein content. But in reality, the adulterated milk... ...caused very serious kidney problems. Many countries to which the products were exported... ...had problems. But it had a devastating effect in China itself. On December 1st, 2008... ...the Chinese government reported... ...that 290,000 people had been affected... ...many of them children with 1,300 babies hospitalized and six babies having died. The actual number is thought to be much higher, and more victims are expected because of the long-term effects of the poisoning. Manufacturers and suppliers have been arrested. Many have been given long jail terms. And two of the chief perpetrators have been sentenced to death. On Sunday evenings, we've been making our way through a letter which we found in the New Testament that Colin read from. It's called 1 Timothy, because it was written to a young man called Timothy by an older man called Paul, who was a messenger or apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul has left Timothy in charge of a church, one that was planted through Paul's preaching in the city of Ephesus. Young Timothy has been left in charge And his purpose in writing to Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy and his theme is summarized in the title we've chosen for our series, Building a Healthy Church. Now you need to hold on to that when you read a book like 1 Timothy. What's it about? It's about how you build a healthy church. And as we've seen, if you've been following the series and if you haven't heard the two that went before that Colin introduced us to the series, you can get them and download them. Uh, or get copies of DVDs or tapes from the library, church chapel library, um, Paul's primary concern is with something which is creating a serious health problem in the life of this church in Ephesus. So immediately, if you have the Bible in front of you, after his initial words of greeting, Paul warns Timothy to watch out for certain people who pose a health threat to this church. And he says this threat comes from what they are teaching, verse 3, false doctrines. You may be surprised to learn that the most serious threat to the health of any and every local church of Jesus Christ is what it teaches. And conversely, the most beneficial means of building a strong and healthy church is what it teaches And so as we look at the passage in front of us today, I want to suggest this is such a serious matter, it is indeed a matter of life or death. So if you've not already done so, turn to 1 Timothy 1, Uh, we're reading verses 12 to 20 now, Colin read verses 12 to 17, so let's just complete the reading by reading the last three verses of this section which is before us this evening, after the... Outburst of praise to the king, eternally, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul then says, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by following them you may fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Now, as you look at this passage, let me just give you a simple way of looking at it. There are all sorts of ways of looking at different sections of the Bible. I hope this will help you to get a handle on what this passage is all about, all right? Basically, it says this. What you teach, what you teach in a church will lead personally and corporately to one of two outcomes. You will either be saved, and that's the focus of verses 12 to 17, or you'll be shipwrecked, and that's the focus of the last three verses that we just read together. Now, this is serious business. And Paul here is writing to those who are teachers, especially Timothy. But these two guys he talks about, H and A, they've been teachers in the church, responsible leaders, yet they've shipwrecked their faith this is a very important matter so let's turn to it now and look at it more carefully for what is at stake is your personal spiritual health and that of this church that bears the name of Jesus Christ uh, first of all then let's look more and we'll look in more detail at this it'll take a little longer in case you're looking at your watch when I've been going a little while and thinking hope it's not going to take as long on the second point as the first point uh, but focus on these first verses and the theme here is saved verses 12 to 17 now look very carefully at the heart of this passage in verse 15 is what paul calls a trustworthy saying in this letter he writes to timothy and the next one he writes to timothy and if you turn over your bibles another one he wrote to another pastor called titus there are five of these sayings that he calls trustworthy sayings he says Here's a trustworthy saying, don't bother looking them up now, just for a little bit of interest later on, you can go back and find the other four. But he starts off here with the first and most fundamental of all. It's a a great surprise and it's happening increasingly in the Christian church today and even in the evangelical church, if you say to someone, what is the gospel? Or to put it another way, Why did Jesus come into the world? What's it all about? What's the purpose? You'll find a very strange thing today. Many people are unwilling or hesitant about giving any answer. But Paul has no hesitation. He quotes this saying, which he says is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. In other words what people believe scholars believe is that in the early church as well as the new testament and the old testament scriptures there were there were a collection of trustworthy sayings that everybody agreed on and so you could just kind of refer back to them maybe they even sang them in church i don't know possibly but but they had this collection of trustworthy sayings. so paul says here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance what's the gospel about why did jesus come into the world christ jesus came into the world to save sinners that's a trustworthy saying. That's something you can rely on. That's something that everybody's agreed about. That God sent his son Jesus, whose name means Savior, into the world, which implies, we don't have time to look at it, that he existed before he came into the world, pre existence of Christ. And the reason he came was to save sinners, people who have gone their own way from the consequences of their rebellion against God. Now, you may wonder where did they get this trustworthy saying from? Well, Probably, almost certainly, from Jesus himself. Jesus said something pretty similar about why he'd come into the world. One occasion he said, The Son of Man, that's the term he used for himself, The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. On another occasion, speaking to religious people who thought they were healthy, or to use the word they used to themselves, righteous, and didn't need saving, he said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Here's a trustworthy saying Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Lost people found, sick people made healthy, saved. That's what makes a healthy church. The foundation on which it is built, we've just celebrated our 200th anniversary in Charlotte Chapel, and it's a fascinating read. If you've not read it in Balfour's book yet, the best value of £10 pounds you'll ever find. But if you read it and make your way through it you'll see there's a whole charlotte chapel has existed for 200 years in all sorts of forms and the music's been different and the style's been different our church government's been different we don't even have a constitution which goes by precedent. all sorts of things have changed over the years but i can tell you one thing that has stood the test throughout this history of this church the reason it came into being was the fundamental assumption and conviction christ jesus came into the world to save sinners that's the gospel And Paul says, this is the gospel that Jesus commissioned me to teach and preach. Instead of these poisonous false doctrines, these other teachers were propagating. Paul says in verse 10, he teaches the sound doctrine that conforms, fits in with the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. And then he bursts into a note of praise and amazement that Jesus Christ entrusted him with such a privilege. Look at verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength and he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. He doesn't mean, of course, that God was looking around for somebody particularly faithful and he chose him. (laughs) Just the opposite. Uh, One person paraphrases it. He says that Paul is saying, as, as it were, to think that he would consider me, of all people, worthy of his trust. And Paul goes on to emphasize, this was so amazing considering what he had been. He was chosen to teach this good news of Jesus despite what he had been. Look at verse 13. Even though I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. He says, this is my CV before I became a Christian. <coughs> In a couple of weeks, we've got another baptismal service. And when people give baptismal uh, give their testimony which people are invited to you don't have to if you're hesitant about it by the way you can just respond to questions but most people give a testimony and we say to them tell people what you were like before you became a christian how you became a christian and what has happened since then briefly here's paul saying here's my testimony before as a christian three things about me you need to know first of all i was a blasphemer saul as he was known in those days by his hebrew name was absolutely convinced that jesus of nazareth was a heretic. So he had no hesitation in speaking against him and vehemently denying that he was the chosen Messiah, the Son of God. Little did he realize he was absolutely wrong and he was committing blasphemy. Not only that, he says, I was a persecutor. This wasn't just my opinion. Everybody I met, I tried to persuade them this was the right opinion and they were wrong if they said Jesus was Christ and Lord. And so I went out of my way to hound such people, to try and get them to backtrack on what they believed, to blaspheme like me. I tried to get them, and if I couldn't get them, I threw them into prison and even conspired when they were killed. And in this, he says, it showed what I was really like in my nature. I was a violent man. The Greek word used to be violence is not, is not so much an action, though it led to violence, it's what lay behind it an attitude of arrogance, insolence which finds satisfaction in proving your point and in humiliating other people. And this is what Paul says, this is what I was like in word, blasphemy, in deed, in persecution, and in thought, violence. Then one dramatic day, and you know the story, if you know the Bible, the road to Damascus, that's where we get the expression from, one dramatic day, his life was turned around when he encountered this Jesus, risen and glorious, and he fell to the ground, blinded by the light of god's presence he said who are you lord And he said i'm jesus whom you're persecuting his whole life was turned around he realized he was terribly wrong and when he stood before god like that blinded by the light of his presence what did he expect he expected he'd be zapped on the spot but he received what he didn't expect and what he didn't deserve so look what paul says he experienced first of all he says i received mercy mercy means not receiving what you deserve i was shown mercy he says because i acted in ignorance and unbelief in old testament law acting in ignorance didn't excuse you of the crime ignorance was no excuse but it did mean if god chose you hadn't willfully done it that god could choose to make it possible for you to be forgiven and paul received god's mercy through jesus because jesus took the punishment he deserved God showed him mercy. And that wasn't all. Paul then says that through Jesus he also experienced grace. Now these two words, are are the two sides of the same coin, grace and mercy. Mercy is not receiving what you deserve. Grace is receiving what you don't deserve. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Grace is God's unmerited favor which he shows to undeserving people. And Paul says... When I met with Jesus, he didn't just show me it you know, as a quick glimpse. He used this wonderful expression. We've been singing about it. He said, he poured his grace out on top of me, you know, like a waterfall. Uh, the picture's used of a, of a river like the River Nile. If you've ever been to Egypt, as I have, you, know, you see this barren land and running through it is the River Nile. And when the water overflows, all the barren land around it, the brown parched soil, suddenly becomes green almost overnight, it seems like. Uh, One writer, John Stott, comments, grace overflowed and faith and love sprang up. Grace flooded with faith, a heart previously filled with unbelief and flooded with love, a heart previously polluted with hatred. And Paul says, this is what it's about. This is the life-giving gospel that will make healthy people, healthy Christians, healthy churches, life-giving good news. And he says, I can affirm this as a matter of personal Testimony. Notice, go back to the original saying, the trustworthy saying. He adds something at the end of it. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Then he says, Of whom I am the worst. Now, many people have said, Come on, Paul, you're exaggerating here. After all, we knew Paul was a religious guy before he became a Christian, he was outwardly very moral. And surely in the whole Roman Empire, there must have been a lot really worse people than Paul. How could he say, I'm the worst? But that's to miss the point. When you stand where Paul stands, if you've ever stood there, you truly do believe you're the worst. Before this day, he was like that religious man in the story Jesus told the parable, who went up to pray in the temple at Jerusalem, and he thanked God that he wasn't as bad as other people. But after that day when he met Jesus, he was like the other guy, the despised tax collector who, who stood in God's presence and he wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast and he said literally, God be merciful to me, the sinner. That's me. And he never lost sight of what he was. And will you notice something very interesting, he didn't say of whom I was, the worst. He says, of whom I am, the worst. I'm the worst of sinners, but I'm a saved sinner. Let me ask you a question. I wonder if you've ever seen yourself like that in God's sight. You see, only those who realize how truly wretched they are can appreciate fully the greatness and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you study not just the Bible, but you study the history of people whom God has used in the past... In great ways, they're all people who've stood where Paul said and stood before God and said, I am the worst of sinners. John Bunyan, who wrote the wonderful book, The Pilgrim's Progress, which is still worth reading. And you can still read his autobiography. The title of it is taken from these verses. It's quite, quite a quaint title, really, but the title is Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. <laughs> Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Now, Paul shares his testimony here about what it means to be saved. Notice where his emphasis is still saying to Timothy, Timothy, this is what the gospel's all about. This is not these false doctrines. This is what the true gospel is about, mercy and grace to undeserving sinners. And he puts it here for a specific purpose. He includes it as an encouraging example. Look again at verse 16 now. We move on a little. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy. Because I was the worst of sinners, for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. I said some of you maybe you have never felt you're really bad. Some of you have felt and maybe even feel this evening you're so bad that there's no real help for you. If, if I put on the screen here your secret life and thoughts and actions and what you were really like, you would be out of this building pretty quick and you'd never come back again and you think if God can see that there's no hope for me Paul says look here if God could save me the worst of sinners he can save you as well he says God God saved me as an example the the word translated example there it means an outline a sketch plan a first draft a prototype Uh, think of those you know those identikit pictures that the police produce when they're looking for someone you know the artist begins with this basic outline of a face and you and then he paints in all the bits and the eyes and everything else the color of hair the skin the nose and so on it, it, it's a model that will fit anyone an identikit picture now it's as though Paul is saying listen my picture was the most difficult you can imagine to, pick, uh, to draw and God drew it and he did this so that anyone else might realize that if God can save me he can save you as well let me summarize it if Christ Jesus can save an extreme sinner like Paul then he can save anyone he can save anyone let me just pause there and say this is an encouragement whoever you are this evening whatever you may have done or has been done to you Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and he saved a guy like Paul who was the worst possible sinner and it means he can save you One of my favorite quotes from C.H. Spurgeon, I've quoted it before in church, but I love quoting it. Spurgeon preached to thousands in London in the 19th century. When he was preaching on this verse, 1 Timothy 1.15, the trustworthy saying, Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Spurgeon said, if the bridge of grace will carry the elephant, it will certainly carry the mouse. Think about that. If the bridge of grace will carry the elephant, it will certainly carry the mouse. Now, the question is, have you crossed the bridge? Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you received eternal life? Or are you resisting His grace and are you trying His patience? The NIVA, unlimited patience, is, I don't think, an accurate translation. It means immense patience. The full extent of God's patience. God is amazingly patient. And if, like Paul, you know from personal experience what it means to be a sinner who has been saved then your response will be like that of Paul. That's where he comes to this great hymn of praise. Now to the king eternally, mortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And, and again, a test of this is when we were singing those songs earlier on, <clears throat> did you sing them from personal experience and say, how marvelous, how wonderful, and my son shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my savior's love for me. Or do you think, well, that's a a nice song, it's a nice tune, you know, but I wonder what they're singing about, really. He says, the gospel is the gospel of this God. He's the king over all earthly rulers and powers. He's the king of the ages, ruling in and over all ages, unlike human kings. He's immortal, incorruptible, unchanging, unlike human beings. He's invisible, no one can see and has seen God, just a glimpse of his glory. He's the only God alongside whom no other gods are gods at all. And so he alone is worthy of honor and glory and praise. And Paul says, and that's so sure, amen. Amen is a Hebrew word that means sure, settled, certain, established. Now that's the first section. Let me come more briefly to the second one. Let me just summarize what the two points again. The first point is what it means to be saved. All right, verses 12 to 17. And Paul here gives an encouraging example. An encouraging example from his own life. But then he turns from that to a second theme in those last three verses, shipwrecked. And he cites the example of these two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, which is the opposite. It's a frightening example. After sharing his own personal testimony, Paul reminds Timothy of his own experience not of his conversion to christ but he's calling to serve christ he issues a challenge to timothy in view of this timothy he says timothy my son i give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by following them by following this healthy option you may fight the good fight holding on to faith and a good conscience the word instruction is the same word as command in verses three and five timothy we know temperamentally was timid by nature unlike paul But Paul says, remember Timothy, you're timid, you've got to stand up and fight. Stand up and be counted. God has called you and equipped you to serve him. And he says to Timothy, you know this because certain prophecies were made about you when people laid their hands on you. We're not sure of exactly when this happened. Probably when Paul was set apart for Christian ministry and people laid hands on him and said, this is God's plan for you. And so he says, you've got to fight the good fight. Remember that. Don't give up. And notice what he says. He says, hold on to two things. The first is objective. Look what it says. He says, holding on to faith. Now, that doesn't mean personal faith. Literally, it means hold on to the faith. Hold on to the truths of the gospel that you've been taught. The sound doctrine, the healthy doctrine I've been speaking about. And with that, he talks about something subjective. He said, and also hold on to a good conscience. Conscience is that inner faculty. It's the moral compass by which God guides us and reminds us when we're doing what is right, but also reminds us when we're going wrong. When you become a Christian, one of, the, one of the signs, if you've ever become a Christian, if you've ever stood where Paul said, is it's an amazing thing. Your conscience begins to reawaken. You suddenly find, before you're a Christian, your conscience becomes deadened. In worst cases, the Bible says it's seared you can't feel anything. One of the signs when you become a Christian is that suddenly you feel uneasy about certain things that you used to do. I remember a man who became a Christian and he said, it's very strange, he said, I've started to be really worried about my expenses claims. What's that about then? Well, you know, I used to put more in than was justified. Everybody does it, that's why you make a bit of extra money. He said, but I'm feeling easy about it now, and I'm going to have to tell the boss, and I've got a problem because I've been claiming 100 miles for every trip, and it's only 70 miles, you know. That's part of the cost of it, but your conscience is awakened in all sorts of areas. But here's the worry. When God speaks to you by your conscience, and you reject it, you can shipwreck your faith. Look what it says, a warning to Timothy. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith verse 19 now this is an inaccurate translation here at the niv Uh, there are occasions in translations where they get it right and wrong it's literally a singular now read it carefully he says holding on to faith and a good conscience some have rejected this good conscience and so have shipwrecked their faith he says some people have deliberately Gone against their conscience. When God has spoken to them about something, they've deliberately and persistently and willfully gone against their conscience. And he says, when you lose hold of that, what happens, the pathology of this is this, what happens is, when you reject your conscience, you know what the next thing happens? You reject the faith. And as a pastor, I can tell you this, I've seen this happen so often. I was discussing with someone some time ago. Uh, I won't quote the name, but that grieves me greatly. A Christian who's been a very prominent Christian, stood up, declared his faith, and now has gone public and said he doesn't believe it anymore, and he questions all his faith and everything else and his doctrines, what he believes. And the person said to me, what do you think about this? Now, this may seem a flippant answer, but listen carefully what I was saying. I said, I wonder how things are with his wife and marriage. The person said, it's nothing to do with his wife and marriage. I said... Maybe not. There are times when you have genuine questions and doubts, particularly at times of difficulty. Take it from me, more than often, there's some moral issue where you go against conscience and then suddenly you begin to question faith and what you believe, your doctrine. And Paul says, be careful. If you first reject your conscience, you will then begin to reject the faith. You lose conscience and then the faith. Uh, Kent Hughes Uh, And he comments in his commentary on this, he says, he comments on people he worked with in Christian ministry. He said, people I spent nights in prayer with, agonizing over lost people and preaching the gospel with, who are now nowhere spiritually. Professing Christians, he says, when morals slip, doctrines ebb, and the fight is soon lost. When morals slip, doctrines ebb, and the fight is soon lost. And this is what Paul says about these two guys. He used a well-known metaphor, the metaphor of their faith being on the rocks, shipwrecked. Calvin, John Calvin, comments on this verse. The metaphor of a shipwreck is very apt, for it suggests that if we wish to reach port with our faith intact, we should make a good conscience the pilot of our course, or otherwise there is a danger of shipwreck. Faith may be sunk by a bad conscience as by a whirlpool in a stormy sea. Faith may be shipwrecked sunk by a bad conscience as by a whirlpool in a stormy sea so t- paul then reminds timothy of this sad situation and he says people have done this you remember timothy these two guys hymenaeus and alexander whom i've handed over to satan to be taught not to blaspheme now timothy obviously knew who these two guys were it was probably common knowledge in the churches we can't be certain about them hymenaeus uh, reoccurs years later in paul's second letter to timothy as someone who didn't return to the faith, but had wandered away from the truth and was teaching that the resurrection that had already taken place. That's 2 Timothy 2.18. There are a couple of other guys called Alexander in Acts and 2 Timothy, who are probably different Alexanders, very popular name. We don't know any more about them. We don't exactly know what their blasphemy was. It was probably linked with what Paul has already been talking about, people who taught and focused on the law of God without the grace of God. But it was so serious that Paul says, I've handed them over to Satan. Literally, what it means is, you may, you may sound kind of exotic, what is he talking about here? He's saying, I've put them out of the church with the hope that this will bring them to their senses. You see, Colin was speaking this morning about how little we make of the church today. We focus on our individual faith. When you are part of a local church of God's people, like you may be in Charlotte Chapel, or if you're a visitor in your home church, there is a protection you experience by being part of God's people and part of God's church. And sometimes you may, you may, you may despise this and, and you may not think much of it. But I tell you this, if you're out of it, you'll experience what it means to be out in the cold and out under the influence of where Satan holds sway. It's a really serious place to be. If you've been a Christian... You're no longer in fellowship with God's people. And we need to recognize, and it's one of the hardest things in a church to exercise discipline. There are occasions, rare occasions sometimes, in serious situations, we need to take serious steps. Why? Because the whole health of the church is affected. We know on one occasion, Paul did this in the church in Corinth. There were people in the congregation in Corinth, a guy was committing incest with his father's wife and everybody's saying wow that's a really spiritually liberal idea and Paul says no it doesn't kick him out but the purpose of doing that says Paul in 1 Corinthians is always restoration it is not to punish people and say we're better than you so you don't keep up to the mark you know you're out no it's where people deliberately step outside of God's grace and the purpose is always restoration so when Paul writes He says in Corinth, he says, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. This is a matter of life and death. Spiritual life and death. In extreme cases, it may be the one drastic means that might save someone from disaster, total disaster. In the New International Commentary, Philip Towner comments, yet it is Paul's hope that expulsion from the fellowship will bring these two leaders to their senses. And from the position of opposition to alignment with Paul's gospel and work, now I've almost finished in and, and good time. This is, let me say something in conclusion. This is a serious issue. I hope you understand that. it's a serious issue. It's a matter of life and death for each one of us. Are you saved, or are you in danger, or even now on the rocks, of being shipwrecked? Let me finish on a positive note with a true story, one of my favorite stories, which looking at my records. I mentioned some 15 years ago in this church. So if you were there and you heard it before, just switch off. But it's a wonderful story. It's a true story. It's a true story of a young man who faced shipwreck, but he ended up being saved. Let me just tell you the story. I wrote it down on that occasion. Read it again. Listen carefully. There's no pictures. Just listen, all right? The month was March. The year was 1748. The place was the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, and the conditions were horrendous. A howling gale ripped into the defenseless little merchant ship called Greyhound. As gusts of wind up to 80 miles an hour tossed the tiny ship from one crest to trough, 30 feet high waves. As the young crewman staggered from his bunk up towards the deck, a seaman shouldered past him on the stairs, climbed onto the deck, and was immediately swept away to a watery grave. To all intents and purposes, it looked as though the young man and the rest of the crew would shortly follow him. The young man in question was only 23 years old, yet he had lived more than most men do in several lifetimes, and he had sunk to depths that few people have ever plumbed. Despite a good upbringing and the influence of a godly mother, he had thrown all restraint aside when he'd gone to sea as a 14 year old. He rejected God and the Bible. He abandoned himself to a life of profanity, blasphemy, drunkenness, and debauchery. He was flogged almost to the point of death for desertion from the Navy. He was so much trouble to his captain that he exchanged him for a crew member on a slave trading ship off the West African coast. He found himself engaged in the slave trade and then he was consigned and sold into slavery himself. But he'd been miraculously rescued by this ship the greyhound because his father way back in england said to the captain of the greyhound i know you're going out to west africa i've got a boy out there will you look out for him he's been gone two years i don't know where he is i know nothing about him if you read the story it's just amazing how he actually came into contact as his ship was pulling away he saw someone on the beach and it was this young man in question and so here he is taking the young man en route Back from Africa, back to home in seeming safety. But now it looks like he will never see his loved ones again. He has shipwrecked his life, and now he's about to be shipwrecked and lost at sea and lost eternally. Yet something occurred in the middle of the storm. This is how one writer describes exactly what he said and did, and it's taken from his own words. As he moved across the remains of the ship's deck. He found himself uttering a first prayer since childhood. If this will not do, the Lord have mercy on us. The sin stained seaman clamped his mouth shut. What had he to do with peace and mercy? What right had he to call upon God and expect to reply? None at all. But amazingly, God heard and answered and saved him, not just from the sea, but from his sins. God had mercy on him. Even more amazingly, the young man became an eminent minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ for the last 43 years of his life. His name, as many of you will know, was John Newton. Towards the end of his long life, when someone spoke to him, he said famously, my memory is nearly gone. But I remember two things that I'm a great sinner and that Christ is a great savior. He's best known, of course, as a hymn writer and best known for one hymn, though he wrote hundreds, which is still worth singing. A hymn of personal experience, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I hope you can sing it from personal experience. And that you know what it is to be saved. God forbid that anyone here should be shipwrecked. Let's pray it again.